truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, March 14th, 2022, the 418th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. I hope you all had a fantastic weekend. Personally, I was more social this weekend than I've been in a while. There's There was a lot going on, birthday parties and concerts and dinners and whatnot. So I did some of that stuff that I don't do a whole lot anymore. And I was in some groups with, let's say, mixed opinions. A person I have known for years, the other night, when I said, hey, buddy, you got to understand you're actually supporting real Nazis right now, right? He said, that's a Fox News talking point. (laughs) A Fox News talking point. And of course, calling things Fox News talking points is a Democrat talking point. Those of us on the America First side don't really watch Fox News. I think that liberals, people who are still this uninformed after two years, really only believe that there's Fox on one side and MSNBC on the other side, and that those to cable news networks, both parts of the same mainstream media and both always pitching the central narrative that represents like the totality of views in the world. And it's funny to accuse someone like me of repeating Fox News talking points, knowing how far ahead all of us are when it comes to the position in any given narrative with what's happening in the mainstream. It's literally impossible for me to repeat Fox News talking points because their talking points arrive like four months after we've all discussed everything. And anybody who is familiar with how the flow of information works on our side, but also just in general, would know that the source of all this information is us. It's the broad Internet community. I don't mean Me in particular, I mean, all of us who are doing the work to get and analyze and spread information. And the more we get eyes on that information, the more that information spreads. The more that information spreads, the more it bubbles up into the central narrative. And then outlets like Fox and MSNBC are forced to address the stuff coming from us. 
So to imagine that the things that I say that disagree with the central narrative are somehow Fox News talking points is madness. And it was especially disturbing because this person is a relatively successful person, a talent manager who's worked for many years. But I got the Fox News talking points argument. I got the Zelensky is Jewish, so there can't be Nazis in Ukraine argument. That makes absolutely no sense. And of course, I was told that he knows someone who just recently got back from Ukraine. And because people's homes and buildings are being destroyed, that means that Putin is the bad guy, he's the real Hitler, and there are absolutely no Nazis in Ukraine. So last night, a video popped up on Telegram from an account that follows the Ukraine and Russia stuff very closely. And it's a video of Ukrainian ambassador to Germany, Andriy Yaroslavovich Melnik. And he's on stage being interviewed live by what seems to be a media figure. And of course, they're speaking German. So I will read the translation as the video plays. But it's important to see how the Ukrainian ambassador to Germany thinks about the Nazi issue in Ukraine. And so this will be the voice of the interviewer first. He asks, Mr. Ambassador, this is about the separatists, but do you always know what strange people are sometimes fighting on your side? There are obviously far-right radical unions with SS runes. Here we can see Azov, and there is even a swastika. Do you always know who is on your side, who is fighting in your name? Do you have them under control? And the answer, as far as radicals are concerned, since the last elections, there isn't a single far-right party in our parliament. This is an important fact. As for the volunteer battalions that you've mentioned, I can say only one thing. When we were attacked by the Russians last year, we had hardly any army. And that's why there were a lot of people, volunteers, who were prepared to fight for their country, and they are doing it. And back to the interviewer. The right sector and those we've seen in the photo, the Azov army, there are thousands of fighters, it's not just a couple of stragglers. And the answer from Melnik. These unions are fighting together with our army, with the National Guard and other units. And they are coordinated and controlled by Kiev. That's why there exists no danger that they do something on their own, beyond what they have coordinated with the army commanders. So they are under your control, he asks. Can you bet your right arm that they are doing nothing wrong? This photo, I've seen it already, Melnik says. But we can't verify it and prove if it's true or not. If there really were these flags. But as I've said, I'd like to clarify once again, these units are coordinated by the general staff in Kiev. They are also part of our defense forces. 
Without them, the Russian army would have advanced much further. That's why they are part of this picture. Without these units, it would be much more difficult to defend ourselves. So he starts out by trying to cast doubt on the authenticity of these pictures, whether they actually represented a real group. And he tried to downplay their size and their role. But the follow-up question was asked, and it was pointed out that these are actually quite large groups with formal connections. And he says, well, you know, we need these fighters because otherwise the Russian army would have advanced far more. Don't worry. These people are all being controlled by Kiev. So their actions are all coordinated with the formal Ukrainian army. And they're not out there doing things on their own. They're not just Nazis being Nazis. They're Nazis being good Ukrainian soldiers, which should be a rather stunning admission for the Ukrainian ambassador to Germany to make. You just heard him justify the Ukrainians working with actual Nazi battalions. And of course, the Uniparty in the American government is standing with Ukraine. They're wearing their little Ukrainian flag lapel pins. They're wearing yellow and blue jackets on the Sunday shows. And all the Americans who cannot let go of the central narrative are posting their support for Ukraine on Instagram. But there's no way that you can separate support for Ukraine in their resistance to the Russian special military operation without directly supporting and rationalizing and justifying the presence of actual Nazi battalions working with the Ukrainian army. They're just the same thing. That would be like in America if the American government, the American military, started directing the operations of a KKK militia, for instance, or let's say supporting Antifa. And as far as Fox News talking points go, I don't think that I am repeating one by pointing out what the Ukrainian ambassador to Germany actually said. Because, of course, it's not a Fox News talking point. It is just true. And it is actually true on the left, too. And the leftist media admits it. There was a funny headline going around this morning from an article published Thursday in the communist propaganda rag Salon. This is by Medea Benjamin and Nicholas J.S. Davies. The headline is, are there really neo-Nazis fighting for Ukraine? Well, Yes, but it's a long story. No, Putin didn't wage war to denazify Ukraine, but that nation's shadowy far-right militias are big trouble. Oh yes, the far-right. It's incredible that they don't see the obvious breakdowns in coherent logic already. So, you know that there are neo-Nazis in the army of the country you're saying you support, got it, but they're far right, so they're actually the bad guys. 
because far right is bad guy and Nazi is bad guy. So these must be the bad guys within the army and the army is actually good. But regardless, Russia is so obviously bad, too. And Russia is far right. And according to very smart people like Michael McFall, Russia is actually worse than Nazis. And once you claim something is worse than Nazis, then it's okay to work with Nazis. Because you pull the old switcheroo and then the Nazis just become a necessary evil that we'll just deal with down the road at some point. From the article, Russian President Vladimir Putin has claimed that he ordered the invasion of Ukraine to denazify its government, while Western officials such as former U.S. Ambassador to Moscow Michael McFaul have called this pure propaganda, insisting, quote, there are no Nazis in Ukraine. In the context of the Russian invasion, the post-2014 Ukrainian government's problematic relations with extreme right-wing groups and neo-Nazi parties has become an incendiary element on both sides of the propaganda war, with Russia exaggerating it as a pretext for war and the West trying to sweep it under the carpet. You got that? So, yes, we are hiding the fact that we are working with Nazis, but it's just as big a problem that the Russians are making a big deal out of this whole Nazi thing. And because we're saying that Putin is exaggerating the Nazi problem in Ukraine, then the Nazi problem in Ukraine isn't really a Nazi problem. It's just a Nazi issue. The reality behind the propaganda is that the West and its Ukrainian allies have opportunistically exploited and empowered the extreme right in Ukraine first to pull off the 2014 coup and then by directing it to fight separatists in eastern Ukraine. And far from denazifying Ukraine, the Russian invasion is likely to further empower Ukrainian and international neo-Nazis as it attracts fighters from around the world and provides them with weapons, military training, and the combat experience that many of them are hungry for. And of course, our Congress and our illegitimate president are trying to send more financial aid over to Ukraine that will be funneled into their militias, at least in part. So we are essentially incentivizing Nazis from around the world to gather in Ukraine and join the other Nazis. But we still must remember that the Nazi problem is just not a big deal. Ukraine's neo-Nazi Svoboda party and its founders, Ole Tianibak, and Andre Perubi played leading roles in the U.S.-backed coup in February 2014. Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Newland and U.S. Ambassador Jeffrey Pyatt mentioned Tianibak as one of the leaders they were working with in their infamous leaked phone call before the coup, even as they tried to exclude him from an official position in the post-coup government. Okay, so... Victoria Newland, the woman who admitted in the Senate the other day that the U.S. does have biolabs in Ukraine and that whatever's in them would be very dangerous if it were to fall into the Russian hands, into the wrong hands. That woman was recorded in this leaked phone call from 2014. She was orchestrating the coup and deciding who would take over who would be propped up as the puppet president in Ukraine once the coup was completed successfully. 
And they were working with neo-Nazi groups during that coup. And members of these groups took official positions in the newly formed Ukrainian government. But they tried to exclude them. So they used the Nazis for what they needed. And then they tried to say, hey, guys, well, you can't be in the government. And then they were like, yes, we can. And they said, oh, okay. well, thank you for helping us with the coup. As formerly peaceful protests in Kiev gave way to pitched battles with police and violent armed marches to try to break through police barricades and reach the parliament building, Svoboda members and the newly formed right sector militia led by Dmitry Yarosh battled police, spearheaded marches and raided a police armory for weapons. By mid-February 2014, these men with guns were the de facto leaders of the Maidan movement. We will never know what kind of political transition peaceful protests alone might have produced in Ukraine or how different the new government would have been if a peaceful political process had been allowed to take its course without interference by the U.S. or violent right wing extremists. Well, great point, Salon, but I think we could probably guess actual peaceful protests don't cause coups. Of course, this wasn't an actual peaceful protest. It was an organized color revolution, as they have staged in many other countries around the world, including in America. And you can see the similarities in tactics between what happened in Ukraine in 2014 and what we've been seeing for the last two years in America. First, with the riots, the BLM Antifa riots, the domestic terrorism that took place across America in the summer of 2020 after George Floyd died of a fentanyl overdose while a policeman's knee was on his shoulder. And we saw what happened January 6th, and I discussed the parallels to the Maidan revolution last week. At what point do you just have to accept that the people staging these color revolutions, George Soros and his acquaintances, actually aren't interested in peaceful protests. In fact, they're happy to violently stomp those protests, the legitimate ones, as we just saw in Canada with the truckers. They're happy to infiltrate those protests. They're happy to undermine those protests. And they're happy to make those protests look like the other side, the protesting side, are the ones causing the violence. And in every instance, the actual violence coming from their side is excused and justified. The Nazis in Ukraine, just like BLM Antifa in America, are not necessary evils. They're part of the plan. But it was Yarosh who took the stage in the Maidan and rejected the February 21st, 2014 agreement negotiated by the French, German, and Polish foreign ministers, under which President Viktor Yanukovych and opposition political leaders agreed to hold new elections later that year. Instead, Yarosh and right sector refused to disarm and led the climactic march on parliament that overthrew the government. Since 1991, Ukrainian elections had swung back and forth between leaders like Yanukovych, who was from Donetsk and had close ties with Russia, and Western-backed leaders like President Viktor Yushchenko, who was elected in 2005 after the Orange Revolution that followed a disputed election. Doesn't that sound familiar? 
Ukraine's endemic corruption tainted every government and rapid public disillusionment with whichever leader and party won power led to a seesaw between Western and Russian aligned factions. And you can see that principle at play in American politics as well. There can be a Republican in office. There can be a Democrat in office, but still the corruption remains because corruption and compromise are how they control world governments. In 2014, Newland and the State Department got their favorite, Arseny Yatsenyuk, installed as prime minister of the post-coup government. He lasted two years until he, too, lost his job due to endless corruption scandals. Petro Poroshenko, the post-coup president, lasted a bit longer until 2019, even after his personal tax evasion schemes were exposed in the 2016 Panama Papers and 2017 Paradise Papers. Petro Poroshenko is also the man on the phone call with Joe Biden while Joe Biden was trying to manage his own corrupt dealings in Ukraine as Donald Trump was about to enter the White House. And Poroshenko is also the guy who has become a mainstream media celebrity because he's basically coming out of retirement and putting on bulletproof vests and looking very military. He's rousing the people of Ukraine to defend their homeland. And the globalists and uniparty communists in America eat it up because they stand with Ukraine. So they stand with the corruption, they stand with the coup, they stand with the color revolution, and they stand with the neo-Nazis. When Yatsenyuk became prime minister, he rewarded Svoboda's role in the coup with three cabinet positions, including Alexander Sitch as deputy prime minister and governorships of three of Ukraine's 25 provinces. Svoboda's Andrei Perubi was appointed chairman or speaker of parliament a post he held for the next five years. Tiani Bach ran for president in 2014, but only got 1.2% of the votes and was not re-elected to parliament. Ukrainian voters turned their backs on the extreme right in the 2014 post-coup elections, reducing Svoboda's 10.4% share of the national vote in 2012 to 4.7%. Svoboda lost support in areas where it held control of local governments, but had failed to live up to its promises, and its support was split now that it was no longer the only party running on explicitly anti-Russian slogans and rhetoric. And isn't it interesting how being a Nazi in Ukraine is being anti-Russian? And consider how anti-Russian sentiment and anti-Russian bigotry are at play with what we are seeing in our popular culture around the world today. Also, it is amazing that they spend time doing analysis on a post-coup election. Like, yeah, there was a color revolution and yeah, there was a coup, but these elections are safe and secure. Maybe one day they'll put it all together. After the coup, right sector helped to consolidate the new order by attacking and breaking up anti-coup protests in what their leader Yarosh described to Newsweek as a war to cleanse the country of pro-Russian protesters. This campaign climaxed on May 2nd with the massacre of 42 anti-coup protesters in a fiery inferno after they took shelter from right sector attackers in the trades union's house in Odessa. After anti-coup protests evolved into declarations of independence in Donetsk and Luhansk, the extreme right in Ukraine shifted gear to full-scale armed combat. 
The Ukrainian military had little enthusiasm for fighting its own people. So the government formed new National Guard units to do so. Right sector formed a battalion and neo-Nazis also dominated the Azov Battalion, which was founded by Andrei Beletsky, an avowed white supremacist who claimed that Ukraine's national purpose was to rid the country of Jews and other inferior races. It was the Azov Battalion that led the post-coup government's assault on the self-declared republics and retook the city of Mariupol from separatist forces. The Minsk II agreement in 2015 ended the worst fighting and set up a buffer zone around the breakaway republics, but a low-intensity civil war continued. An estimated 14,000 people have been killed since 2014. Representative Ro Khanna from California and other progressive members of Congress tried for several years to end U.S. military aid to the Azov Battalion. They finally did so in the fiscal 2018 defense appropriation bill, but Azov reportedly continued to receive U.S. arms and training despite the ban. And we've already discovered that the CIA was part of that. It's widely reported. In 2019, the Sufan Center, which tracks terrorist and extremist groups around the world, warned, The Azov Battalion is emerging as a critical node in the transnational right-wing violent extremist network. Its aggressive approach to networking serves one of the Azov Battalion's overarching objectives to transform areas under its control in Ukraine into the primary hub for transnational white supremacy. Transnational white supremacy. They are recruiting Nazis from around the world to Ukraine to kill Russian people and Ukrainians of Russian ethnicity, Russian-speaking Ukrainians, that they call separatists. But hey, just think about how much worse everything would be if we weren't funding and arming and training neo-Nazis. Russia's siege of Kiev may have already been successful if we didn't have those Nazis. The Sufan Center described how the Azov Battalion's aggressive networking reaches around the world to recruit fighters and spread its white supremacist ideology. Foreign fighters who train and fight with the Azov Battalion then return to their own countries to apply what they have learned and recruit others. Well, my, 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 that sounds an awful lot like ISIS. Sounds an awful lot like Al-Qaeda. Man, I hope the Uniparty Communists and the CIA in America aren't helping those groups too. It would be terrible if we found out that when Donald Trump said Barack Obama created ISIS, it might have had a literal meaning too. Gosh, that would be terrible to find out. Violent foreign extremists with links to Azov have included Brenton Tarrant, who massacred 51 worshippers at two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand in 2019, and several members of the U.S. Rise Above movement who were prosecuted for attacking counter-protesters at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in August 2017. Other Azov Veterans have returned to Australia, Brazil, Germany, Italy, Norway, Sweden, the UK, and other countries. Despite Svoboda's declining success in national elections, neo-Nazi and extreme nationalist groups increasingly linked to the Azov Battalion have maintained power on the street in Ukraine and in local politics in the Ukrainian nationalist heartland around Lviv in western Ukraine. After President Volodymyr Zelensky's election in 2019, the extreme right threatened him with removal from office or even death if he negotiated with separatist leaders from Donbass and followed through on the Minsk Protocol. 
Zelensky had run for election as a peace candidate, but under threat from the right, he refused to even talk to the Donbass leaders whom he dismissed as terrorists. So the extremely heroic comedic actor whose show was produced with funding from Ihor Kolomoisky, who owns Privat Bank, then ran for president, still in contact with the corrupt Ukrainian oligarch Kolomoisky. He came into office with like 75% of the vote, very realistic, very safe, very secure election. He was preaching hope and change. He was the peace candidate. Once he got into office, he realized that he couldn't be the peace candidate because he needed to appease the Nazis. The heroic comedic actor decided to give the Nazis what they wanted and allow them to continue attacking the separatist regions who he now describes as terrorists. So he went from being the peace candidate before election to calling the separatists terrorists and allowing the Nazis to get their way. But don't worry, that was in the past. The comedic actor is now once again a hero. During Trump's presidency, the U.S. reversed Obama's ban on weapons sales to Ukraine, and Zelensky's aggressive rhetoric raised new fears in Donbass and Russia that he was building up Ukraine's forces for a new offensive to retake Donetsk and Luhansk by force. The civil war has combined with the government's neoliberal economic policies to create fertile ground for the extreme right. And what a clever rhetorical trick that is again. Okay, so there is the neoliberal Zelensky government. There is the civil war happening between the Nazis in Ukraine and the separatists who Zelensky calls terrorists And Zelensky chose to appease the needs of the Nazis. And we are meant to believe that the Nazis are far right and that his neoliberal policies in not being the peace candidate are what has allowed the far right to ascend. Isn't that incredible for someone who is portrayed as a parallel to Barack Obama? The post-coup government imposed more of the same shock therapy that was imposed throughout Eastern Europe in the 1990s. Ukraine received a $40 billion international monetary fund bailout and, as part of the deal, privatized 342 state-owned enterprises, reduced public sector employment by 20%, along with salary and pension cuts, privatized healthcare, and disinvested in public education, closing 60% of its universities. Sounds like the comedic actor is doing a good job. Thanks, International Monetary Fund. You fixed Ukraine. Coupled with Ukraine's endemic corruption, these policies led to the looting of state assets by the corrupt ruling class and to falling living standards and austerity measures for everybody else. The post-coup government upheld Poland as its model, but the reality was closer to Boris Yeltsin's Russia of the 1990s. After a nearly 25% fall in GDP between 2012 and 2016, Ukraine is still the poorest country in Europe. 
As elsewhere, the failures of neoliberalism have fueled the rise of right-wing extremism and racism. And now the war with Russia promises to provide thousands of alienated young men from around the world with military training and combat experience, which they can then take home to terrorize their own countries. Now, this is super far-left communist salon, okay? Somehow, they are able to put all of these things in one article and then still miss the bigger picture because they have adopted the idea that is widespread in our culture that there is something right-wing about racism or Nazism. There's nothing right-wing about either of those. And we can see it in action in our own country. The left creates racism literally by making every single thing in the world about race while pretending to solve all of the problems of race around the country and demanding the votes of ethnic minorities. If you don't vote for Joe Biden, you ain't black. The failures of neoliberalism, the failure is that of collectivist ideologies that intentionally divides groups of people in order to take power. The failure is in the globalist order in the first place. It's not neoliberalism, and we would be saved with Salon's brand of progressive communism. The problem is with this secular utopian thinking, the scientific materialism, the collectivist ideologies, that lead to the same place always. They will always lead to hatred and racism and division. No one gets so free and autonomous that they become a Nazi. These divisions and these distinctions are manufactured and then exploited by the same people. And this has happened in every place that communism has been tried, including now the global version of it. And just to finish off this article here, the Sufan Center has compared the Azov Battalion's international networking strategy to that of Al-Qaeda and ISIS. U.S. and NATO support for the Azov Battalion poses similar risks as their support for Al-Qaeda-linked groups in Syria 10 years ago. Wait, oh, when Barack Obama was president. Wow. Those chickens quickly came home to roost when they spawned ISIS and turned decisively against their Western backers. Right now, Ukrainians are united in their resistance to Russia's invasion, but we should not be surprised when the U.S. alliance with neo-Nazi proxy forces in Ukraine, including the infusion of billions of dollars in sophisticated weapons, results in similarly violent and destructive blowback. So that is the far-left propaganda rag salon, and not, apparently, a Fox News talking point. So why... After years and years of perpetual wokeness, is it now okay for the media to ignore the fact that our American taxpayer money, quote unquote, I mean, really, it's money that they create from nothing and then decide that the American population must work as slaves until all that money is paid off. That is really what's happening. But let's call it taxpayer money. Our taxpayer money is going to fund and train Nazis. And not only does the media not care, they are denying it 
because they stand to benefit the global order that they are there to be a mouthpiece for stands to benefit from what these Nazis are doing in Ukraine. While Hollywood actors and influencers clap right along before turning back and calling Trump supporters Nazis. Now, this is going to seem like I'm switching subjects without a segue, but if you follow me here, I think that you will find this is just a really long and subtle segue. There is a piece from over the weekend in Uncovered DC by Daniel Bobinski. The headline is, is your governor a marionette for the World Economic Forum? And I'm going to skip down toward the end of this article. The section heading, must states bow down? One might think that states have a right to say no to the World Economic Forum. However, if we look at the National Governors Association's partnership with the World Economic Forum, we see they have an agreement. Isn't it interesting that nearly every state, save for South Dakota, where Governor Kristi Noem doesn't play ball with the National Governors Association, had nearly an identical reaction to the COVID pandemic. All other things being equal, states have the right to say no. But in addition to our nation's governors having an allegiance to the World Economic Forum through the NGA, pretty much every state has accepted ARPA money, the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. And as the saying goes, with shekels come shackles. Lo and behold, lots of federal strings appear to be tied to accepting ARPA money such as encouraging vaccination and compliance with CDC regulations. It is my opinion that whatever edicts come out of the World Economic Forum or through its collaborative arm, the World Health Organization and its marionettes, the FDA, NIH and CDC, those decrees should have zero authority over Americans. Each state is and should be a sovereign state. And the person serving as the state's chief executive officer should be acting on behalf of self-governance and liberty for each citizen, not serving as a marionette for the elite. To bring about independence, many constitutional conservatives will need to get elected at the most basic levels of each state's government and push back against the ever encroaching tentacles of the deep state and the World Economic Forum. And so what's being highlighted here is a centralization of state government policy that is, in some sense, separate from the federal government. I'm not saying the federal government is not equally involved with the World Economic Forum, but this National Governors Association, they have an arrangement with the World Economic Forum, and it just so happens that all of these governors around the nation implemented similar or the same policies in response to COVID. Masks, lockdowns vaccine mandates, vaccine encouragement, determining some businesses are essential and others are not, banning certain kinds of businesses, making all sorts of businesses follow ridiculous anti-scientific rules to be allowed to remain open. And after two years, we can all see what has come of all that. None of these strategies helped at all. They did not save lives and they caused great harm. And they did all this on behalf of a centralized organization that was telling them what they must do. Now, how and why does the World Economic Forum have such power? That should be an important question, right? I mean, it's easy to say that 
the World Economic Forum is responsible for X, Y, Z. And certainly that much is true. But how does it happen and why does everyone go along with it? Well, the first answer is obviously that the humans who are representing, for instance, the National Governors Association and the various governors around the nation who are on board with that agenda, well, they're all being personally incentivized in one way or another, or it's a matter of compromise, corruption and compromise. They work together. Generally speaking, they'll have some sort of information that could ruin the life and the reputation of the politician or the business leader or whoever it is. The politician becomes aware that that compromising material is out there. And so now they can be blackmailed. But it doesn't have to be all bad. You don't have to simply live in fear. They'll enrich you while they blackmail you. They'll reward you so that you want to keep doing what they say. It's not just a punishment. It's the carrot and the stick. Corruption and compromise working together. So let's see what the World Economic Forum wants out of the National Governors Association. This is a press release from July 12, 2018. The National Governors Association and the World Economic Forum announced new partnership. This is from NGA.org, the National Governors Association website. Today, the National Governors Association is announcing a new partnership with the World Economic Forum Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution to identify and implement policies promoting technological innovation. NGA's Technology Policy Office, NGA Future, will work with the WEF Center to host policymaker workshops on emerging innovations at the 2018 NGA Summer Meeting and in the fall at the Center's San Francisco headquarters. These workshops will create awareness about new technologies and identify relevant policy actions at the state level. NGA is very excited about the new opportunities sparked by this collaboration. This new partnership will provide governors and key staff with expert advice on the best ways for states to prepare for future innovation, said Scott Pattison, NGA CEO and executive director. Isn't that an interesting turn of phrase to prepare for future innovation? And of course, this is the long-term plan to move us into the Great Reset Society. And it basically includes torturing the citizens of each state to make them behave differently. If they don't want you to drive, they don't merely advertise electric cars. They increase the price of gas. They reduce downtown parking by putting up racks for city bikes or reshaping the sidewalks out into the street, getting rid of the parking lane, or they'll make certain spots only for electric vehicles. They will raise the price of parking. They'll raise the price of parking tickets. And so you decide, well, it's not really worth driving downtown anymore. I guess I'll just take Uber. And then they put all sorts of rules and regulations into Uber and start raising the prices and raising the prices and raising the prices until you can't go anywhere at all. But all of that is in service of future innovation. And the governors who swore an oath to the Constitution and to the people, well, they have to follow the rules that they agreed to follow, which means you have to follow the rules that they agreed to follow. Is it legal or constitutional? Absolutely not. 
but nobody's there to stop them. We literally have our governors coordinated by a foreign body of the most powerful people in the world. And we're supposed to think that all of this is somehow just legitimate government. These are the people putting our election systems in place, and they are serving a higher power than the people of the United States. The World Economic Forum's work through the center is perfectly aligned with the goals of my chairman's initiative. Ahead of the curve, innovation governors, said Nevada Governor Brian Sandoval, chairman of the National Governors Association. I am certain that the senator's partnership with the NGA will prove to be of incredible benefit to both organizations as we all look toward the future of technology policy. Where in that is the benefit to the people? Well, it doesn't exist. The purpose is to benefit both organizations because the more powerful they become, the more they get their way. The partnership between NGA and the center recognizes the rapid growth of technological advancement and affirms the critical role of states in facilitating innovation in the coming years. Both organizations anticipate a fruitful relationship, bringing together policymakers and scientific experts to produce effective regulatory frameworks for future technologies. They will decide everything and you'll like it. The National Governors Association is the first organization of subnational governments to partner with the center, said Murat Sanmez, head of the World Economic Forum Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution Network. We are looking forward to working with the association. How great. Not only are they working with national governments, now they're working with subnational governments. Global communist infiltration works best when you cover all the bases. This partnership is just the latest of several NGA initiatives designed to prepare governors for future innovations in everything from artificial intelligence to self-driving cars. And it attaches links for more information. So the organization that uses technology to control populations is now working with state governors to implement the technology to control populations. And of course, the vaccine passports will be a big part of that. Now, a very smart friend of mine was doing some digging on the World Economic Forum website, and they actually have a full code of conduct. And it's very interesting. Let's hear what Klaus Schwab has to say about it. Dear colleagues, today I am incredibly proud of what we have achieved collectively at the forum. From our humble beginning in 1971, when we were a small group of people focused on our mission to improve the state of the world through multi-stakeholder interactions, we've come a long way. Today, our status as the International Organization for Public-Private Cooperation is a testimony to our success. Ah, yes, the rise of fascism. The cornerstone of our great achievement has been our team spirit and impeccable reputation, which continue to inspire trust in our constituents and remain true to our vision. Over the years, while we've achieved several milestones, we've grown significantly and our team now exceeds 600 bright individuals. We are arguably one of the most multicultural organizations, representing 98 nationalities with equally diverse backgrounds. This multicultural set of people is what defines the forum and allows us to adopt a truly global mindset, 
However, it also brings with it several challenges. Back in 1971, we were a cohesive unit that operated more like a family, and the culture was rather homogenous. Given the scale at which we operate today, our overall culture is a medley of cultures. Given that our reputation is closely intertwined with our success, the actions of one individual can have a significant impact on our overall brand. Therefore, it is imperative that each of us embraces a culture that is uniform across the forum and abides by what we stand for. This code of conduct is a set of guiding principles that will ensure we conduct ourselves appropriately not only with internal stakeholders, but also with external stakeholders, fostering a culture that is truly representative of the forum. It is the responsibility of each of us to ensure that we embrace it and also have the courage to speak up when anything appears to breach this code. I thank you for your wholehearted support of this initiative and the conviction that we will shape an organization that lives and works in the spirit of one forum. So essentially... Everybody has to act the same way, and there's going to be a system so that people can speak up when any member is not acting the right way. And here are the core principles. The forum adheres to the principles of independence, impartiality, moral integrity, and intellectual integrity. These principles are of the utmost importance to the safeguarding of the forum's mission, reputation, and status. It's important to note that they are not talking about individual independence, individual impartiality, individual moral integrity, individual intellectual integrity. They're talking about the rules that are created that everyone must follow so that the organization can project those ideals. Together, we must apply these principles in everything we do. Uphold the forum's mission in any initiative we engage in. Protect the forum's reputation and that of the forum's members, partners, and constituents. Forum members rely on our integrity and this trust needs to be fostered and safeguarded. In everything that you do, be truthful to yourself, to our forum members, and to your colleagues. You are responsible for your actions and omissions. You accept the consequences of your choices and do not blame others for your actions. You are basically swearing an allegiance to a secret society here. And they go into potential conflicts of interest that could interfere with the forum's mission. They go into intellectual property, noting that the forum will own the intellectual property you create during the course of your duties with the forum. And you have to assume that that means if you are a member, your intellectual property becomes their intellectual property. And then they have some interesting social media guidelines. And it's worth having a look at those. The following guidelines will help you understand your responsibilities to the forum when you interact in those public networks. Be transparent. Even when you communicate as an individual, people could perceive you to be speaking on behalf of the forum. The forum is independent, impartial, and nonpartisan. You are not expected to be without opinions, but to manage them in a professional and responsible manner. You should leave people in no doubt that you represent yourself and do so respectfully. Live the forum's core principles and mission. The forum prides itself on its mission and commitment to improving the state of the world. 
When engaging in any social media or online network, try to add value. Judge your contributions in light of the forum's mission. Protect confidential information and relationships. Online posts, tweets, and conversations are not private. Your contributions will be around for a long time and may be shared by others. Never discuss the forum's proprietary or confidential information. Blog posts and comments on social networks may generate media interest. If they contact you, inform the public engagement team immediately. You are your online image. Consider the profile picture you choose in terms of your professional image. Likes, comments, picture, or video uploads all contribute to your image. So yes, you're an individual with opinions, but let's just be sure that if you're going to express your opinions publicly, they all fall in line with the mission of the World Economic Forum. And all the forum members and constituents and partners need to go ahead and do that. And once again, we can see an example of full information control from the top down. And then they finish with some extensive information on how to report people in organizations that violate the code of conduct. So full narrative control, everything benefits the World Economic Forum. You can't speak out against the World Economic Forum. You can't violate their code of conduct in any way or else you are subject to reporting and penalties. And just with the fact that the National Governors Association is partnered with the World Economic Forum might give you some indication about how dangerous something like this could be. But it actually gets worse when you go in and begin to look at their partners. They have hundreds, maybe a thousand corporate partners and a lot of them are names that you're familiar with. Adobe, Apple, Amazon, AstraZeneca, Alibaba, Mitt Romney's former company, Bain, Bank of America, Barclays, Bayer, BlackRock, Blackstone Group, Bloomberg, Boeing, Bright Star Capital, ByteDance. We're only on the B's. And I am reading one out of every 20 of them. The Carlisle Group, Cantor Fitzgerald, Chevron, Cisco, Citibank, Cloudflare, Condé Nast, Credit Suisse, CVS. And of course, you have Meta and Moderna and Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson and JP Morgan and the New York Times and NBC News. The Nielsen Ratings Company, the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. Any major organization, any transnational organization, the corporations that run seemingly everything we do in life these days, all of them are partners of the World Economic Forum. And what does that mean when you begin to consider, for instance, the communications about the vaccine. What does it mean for the communications regarding the Russia special military operation in Ukraine? Especially with the understanding that the interests they're protecting in Ukraine are the interests of the global communists, the interests of the World Economic Forum. They're not protecting the Ukrainian people because Vladimir Putin, by and large, is not attacking the Ukrainian people. He is attacking the global communists in Ukraine and their Nazi armies. 
And now my slow playing segue will begin to make sense. An article caught my eye this weekend, and it's a report in the Daily Mail about executions in Saudi Arabia. The headline is biggest mass execution in Saudi Arabia's history sees 81 men killed in one day as country state television says criminals, which included members of Al Qaeda, followed the footsteps of Satan. And this article and the many other articles, it's a version of this has been published in countless outlets, but they're all presenting this issue as proof of Saudi Arabian savagery, the brutality of Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudi regime. But I was caught by the fact that they noted how the state media in Saudi Arabia was presenting things. And of course, the implication when the mainstream media uses the term state media, when referring to another country, we get the image of a communist regime or a dictatorial regime suppressing free speech and the free press. And all of these outlets report the story essentially the same. They all have the same story with the same point of view. And I thought, well, that's odd. We know that all of these major media companies, at least in the United States, are owned by the same six people or organizations, and they all align on their narrative almost exactly. So it's kind of funny when they are calling other outlets, state media to us. And the image they present is that, oh, these free Western countries, these countries with free speech and free press, well, they don't have state media. That's why we don't talk about American state media. And of course, if they did right now with Joe Biden pretending to be president, well, then the state media would be serving Joe Biden. So that doesn't work in the context of our politics. But it works really well in the context of the politics of other countries around the world. The organizations that they label state media are the ones that we are implicitly told to ignore, right? I mean, you can't trust that. It's propaganda. Trust us. I mean, we give you the false story about virtually everything, but we are right when we say that a media organization from another country is propaganda. Just trust us. And so I'm working on a piece of writing and I was searching for some headlines about what they're currently blaming on QAnon these days. And there was a CNN article over the weekend analysis. Russia and QAnon have the same false conspiracy theory about the biolabs. And it's like, okay, obviously we know that anyone who does not repeat the slogans of the central narrative is QAnon. They call everybody QAnon so that people will dismiss them, not take the ideas seriously, and understand that they will be punished and bullied and shamed if they even think about discussing the ideas that are now labeled QAnon. But QAnon, in this case, agrees with Russia. And by the way, from their perspective, I'm QAnon and you're QAnon, and everybody who's not them is QAnon. There was another article that said QAnon and Trump supporters and 
vaccine deniers are all agreeing about the Ukraine biolabs theory. So we've got Russia, QAnon, Trump supporters and COVID deniers slash anti-vaxxers all agreeing about a conspiracy theory, a completely baseless conspiracy theory. Except Russia took their case to the UN last week and Brazil and India and China, among other countries, agreed that an investigation should be done. In fact, China today is calling on the U.S. to come forward with all the documents and all the information about what is going on in the Ukrainian bio labs. Now, again, just for a reminder, we covered this extensively last week, but the WHO came out with a release through Reuters that they had asked officials in Ukraine to destroy all the high threat pathogens in those labs. We know that Victoria Newland admitted to the existence of the labs. We know from Ukrainian embassy records that the labs did exist and there was documentation from those. And we know that that documentation was deleted from their websites. And we're told that none of this was about bioweapons, but also that if any of it was to fall into the wrong hands, well, that could be the beginning of World War Three. So there are dangerous and deadly high threat pathogens in those labs, but they're not bioweapons. So we have all these distinct and different groups with different sets of priorities all understanding these baseline facts and all reaching the same conclusions about what these baseline facts mean. And all of this is an unfounded, baseless conspiracy theory, we are told, by the same people who label others state media. We also know that all of those organizations that call everything a conspiracy theory have some level of formal organization, not only among themselves in media conglomerates, but also with the World Economic Forum. And they are always on the same page in their messaging about virtually everything. On the other hand, we have, as I said, distinct groups with different sets of priorities. Now, among those two classes, right, the centralized media operation that we know is controlled and that we are told is controlled. They work together and they don't hide it. In fact, they're proud of their partnerships. So that's on one side. And then on the other side, we have everybody from normal citizens who don't believe the central narrative, right? We got the QAnons, the very, very dangerous QAnons. We have Trump supporters. We have vaccine deniers. But then we also have the governments of Brazil and India and Russia and China. And we have an actual trail of actual facts. So how is it that we in this case, and I put myself on that other side, obviously, how is it possible that we could be creating a false story that is coordinated through all these distinct groups with different priorities. We just all agree to the same propaganda. Americans 
who are concerned about protecting their freedom are actually working not only on Russia's behalf, right? We're all Vladimir Putin stooges, but we're also doing it for Brazil's benefit or India's benefit or China's benefit. Is that what we're meant to believe? And all of the evidence that they try to hide actually does exist and would lead any informed and reasonable person to the exact same conclusions we reach that thing. That's the state media. That's the propaganda operation. Well, of course not. There's no way to project a false story worldwide that is agreed to by a whole bunch of parties whose priorities are in direct opposition to one another and whose priorities most people are unaware of. People aren't concerned about the COVID vaccines because they're doing the work of Brazil and India. They're concerned about the problems with the vaccines because there are problems with the vaccines and the documentation of that is endless. And the number of reported problems is skyrocketing right now as the documents that Pfizer and the FDA have finally released are being poured through. It looks worse for the vaccines and the vaccine companies every day. And on the other side, we have a constant effort to protect all of these things. And that effort is highly coordinated. They are all saying the same things. And they're saying all those things with almost no factual basis in reality that their claims can actually attach to, which is why they never provide any support for their claims. What we have is an almost entirely false story that does not map onto reality at all. And yet they all stick to it. If everyone is always telling the truth, then you don't need any coordination for distinct parties with different priorities to arrive at the same conclusions. It happens naturally as people just observe reality and analyze it and come to conclusions about what it all means. And you place that in opposition to a story that isn't even internally coherent in any way. All of these story elements that they rely on to create the narratives are fungible. The Nazis were bad and now they're good. Nothing changed morally. The facts on the ground didn't change. The only fact that changed is what the media needs us to believe in the moment. So they'll tell us the Nazis are a necessary evil for a little while. And then after the situation winds down, They'll do all the repair on the narrative about how actually it was really bad that we participated with the Nazis, or it'll be how necessary the Nazis were in preserving the global order, but they'll all be taken care of because there were some war crimes. We're going to punish some leader of some extremist group, and they'll say, yes, Nazis were bad the whole time. We can't believe this Nazi leader directed his men to do all these things that we funded and trained them and armed them to do. Because the narrative doesn't need to be true. It never needs to be true. It only needs to be useful. And the true and false parts of each individual element, they don't matter at all. They'll just switch them out or they'll spin them in a different way. It is absolutely only and obviously a propaganda network. 
You can see the organization behind it. You can see the coordination behind it. And the idea that we are conspiracy theorists while they are actually conspiring to propagandize the world is utterly insane. And that, my friends, is how your neighbors, your friends, your family are supporting actual Nazis in a military engagement they don't know the first thing about. They are scraping the bottom at this point. And I would say it's sad. I would say that it saddens me that their heads are going to explode, but it's been two years and they have not questioned any of their beliefs. They have not questioned the media. They have gone along with every single cause and every single issue that they're told to go along with. They do not believe anything true. That's how we got here. This is the product of propaganda and censorship. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range.
It's hell!